We're going to be reading Luke 21, verses 5 to 38. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen, and what will, the, what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming that I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs will from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give your for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of, of, of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those whose lives who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple.
Good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church, and it's great to have you with us, uh, especially if you're first time with us or those joining us via the live stream. Uh, it's been cold and wet outside for the last few weeks, but what a warm and encouraging passage this is, right? <laughs> some people love this kind of stuff. Some people are really put off by it. We've been working our way through Luke's gospel for a number of years, and we come to this passage and we don't shy away from it. It is God's word to us, uh, and there are things in it that we can learn from it. Uh, and so we're going to work our way through it. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. This is how we've started this term, thinking about the coming of the king. And as the king, he's made a whole lot of claims. But tonight's passage just takes a bit of a surprising turn, and we're going to think through what that looks like. So as always, we need God's help to enable us not only to understand what's going on here, but for us to put it into practice. So I invite you to pray with me now. Lord God, we do thank you that you don't leave us in the dark wondering uh, what's going to take place and how we should respond. Uh, King Jesus knows exactly what we need to know and has made it known to us. And yet we can misunderstand, we can go off on tangents, we can run ahead of the things that have been spoken. And so we ask that tonight as we just slow down to think about what is actually here in this part of Luke's gospel, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that understand, and that you would enable us to actually put this into practice uh, so that it shows that we live for King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, for the last few weeks, our televisions and the internet have been filled with the news of the war that is taking place in the Ukraine. A year ago, it was the brutal events that continue to take place in Myanmar, though we hear much less of that now. We've heard even far less about Taiwan and Afghanistan, nothing at all about Ethiopia, Yemen and Iran. And yet every single one of these countries right now are hotspots that could flare up into worsening violence at a moment's notice. Wars and uprising, using the language of verse 9, are no theoretical possibility. They are our lived experience, even if that is from somewhat of a distance. The closest that I've ever come to war was when Christy and I visited a hospital on the western border of Thailand almost 20 years ago. The Karen people in Myanmar have been brutally oppressed there for decades, long before the Tatmadaw uh, perpetrated their coup last year. We were at this makeshift field hospital when a man who had been shot in the conflict was brought in in the back of a ute. He smelled terrible. His bullet wounds were open to both plain sight and the flies, and I have no idea if they were able to save his life. War is terrifying. The closer we get to it, probably the more terrifying it is. And so seemingly very out of step with what's come before this chapter, this chapter that we've just read is filled with Jesus' words about war. And so tonight we're going to ask, why does Jesus speak of a coming war? Why does Jesus speak of a coming war? And we're going to think about that question under three headings. Firstly, war is coming, verses 5 to 11 and 20 to 28. Secondly, persecution is coming, 
verses 12 to 19. And together, those two things mean, therefore, that we should watch and pray. So why does Jesus speak of coming war? As we've already noted in our series, the headings in our Bibles can unfortunately sometimes obscure the links that Luke wants us to make. Jesus has just finished comparing a widow who's given a measly amount to the temple with those who make huge financial contributions. In the thinking of most, the widow's gift is a complete waste of time. What she has given is so minuscule it's unable to contribute in any meaningful way. Better people have given far more valuable gifts that are used, as we find out now, to fund the beautification of the temple. But Jesus has already clarified that it isn't the amount that matters to God. It is the attitude with which it is given. God is interested in what we think of him as shown in our giving, not in what others think of us because of how much we've given. And yet, despite Jesus' very clear words, at least some of the disciples remain impressed by the fancy decorations, which were clearly funded by very generous financial gifts, which triggers Jesus' statement that war is coming. Now, that may sound to you like a little bit of an exaggeration, but we need to understand that Israel had a history of war that Jesus is drawing upon, which his first hearers would have understood completely. Just 500 years earlier, Israel had been overrun by the Babylonian army, the incredibly beautiful temple that Solomon had built, wiped out. The few people who did survive the war were taken away in exile. And though they were allowed to return to the Promised Land, the presence of Roman occupying forces on all the streets of Jerusalem, was a daily reminder that though they were home, war was never far away. Into that context, Jesus doesn't give a a vague prediction that at some time in the future, tensions might just flare up into a full-scale war. He explains that a second exile is coming as judgment on Israel. Rather than being impressed by lavish decorations, Jesus says that God's displeasure is about to be poured out because of them and what they're doing, which ties this week's section into last week's section. The religious leaders had been using the temple and the law for their own benefit when the law was intended to ensure that people just like the widow were cared for. Because God is so displeased with the leader's misuse of the law to oppress the weak, the temple is going to be destroyed again. Which we might read as just a a sad case of the demolition of an iconic building, the name of progress. We've got to get rid of the old, bring in the new. But to those listening to Jesus at the time, it signified much, much more. When planes were flown into the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001, it was an enormous tragedy. Almost 3,000 people lost their life that day. But the buildings were not just random targets. They were chosen for their symbolic value to make the statement that capitalism and the West have a terrifying enemy. And likewise, when Jesus says that no stone 
will be left on top of another verse 6, everyone watching on would have understood its symbolic meaning, that Israel had been conquered and their God defeated. See, if a city and its temple could be destroyed, then clearly the God of that city was unable to stand against the stronger invading forces. Now, clearly, and in the end of the Old Testament, we have it explained, as Israel has already experienced, that the destruction of the temple and the exile of the remnant was the severest judgment that God was going to pour out on his people. Their understanding, the world's understanding, that this was a God not able to control things was a misunderstanding because God was the initiator of the first exile and was going to be the initiator of this one to come too. Jesus says that it's time for round two, exile 2.0, which prompts the disciples' question, which we read in verse 7. When? Not how do we avoid this? Or, or King Jesus, what's our counterattack strategy? When? Give us a timetable, please, Jesus. Rather than answering their question of when, Jesus gives details of what is going to happen. Verse 8, there will be misinformation campaigns. Don't be deceived. There will be wars and revolutions. Verse 9, don't be frightened. It's not the end yet. There will be international conflicts. Verse 10, as nations battle against one another. But even worse, there will be heavenly conflicts. Verse 11, this is even then even bigger than world war, this is universal war. In language very similar to that which was used in the book of Exodus, the terrible war that is to come is not merely the actions of some power-hungry tyrant. God himself is going to go to war against Jerusalem, sending plagues as judgment, not on Egypt, but on Jerusalem. It is an absolutely terrifying revelation. One moment, they're admiring the beautiful temple, a building that rightly should be extravagant to show honour to the one true God. That's what it says in the book of Exodus, that they're supposed to build it that way. The next, they're confronted with a terrifying prospect of war, a war that is being sent by God as punishment on them, which probably means that war is not even a broad enough term to describe what Jesus is speaking about. War is just one of the terrifying judgments that God is going to use to bring about the desolation of his people. So tragic is this that there simply are not words to adequately describe it. I think it's pretty safe to say that this was not quite the response that the disciples expected when commenting on how nice the temple looked. And thankfully at this point, Jesus pauses his overwhelming description of war to zero in on its impact on his disciples. What they most needed to understand is that even before this war gets fully up and running, their choice to side with King Jesus marks them out as the enemy. And so our point two, persecution is coming. Well, we've already seen in the series that the opposition to King Jesus has been ramping up, especially since he entered Jerusalem riding on that colt. Jesus now tells them that that opposition is going to keep on getting worse, not just for him, but for everyone who is on his side. Sides 
in this war that is coming are chosen not on geographical or ethnic lines, not based upon philosophy or natural resources, but on whether you acknowledge Jesus as king or not. This war is at heart a rebellion, a fight that results from an unwillingness to accept Jesus as king, a conflict that places the disciples in the crosshairs of an angry opposition. The incredible encouragement that Jesus gives his disciples in the face of such bad news is that they don't have to come up with their own clever words to try to win the court cases. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I, Jesus, will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. If you go back and read verses 12 to 9, there are prophecy that are recorded taking place in the book of Acts. The disciples are, as Jesus prophesies, dragged before the religious and political courts. They are frequently imprisoned. But they don't perceive their persecution to be a bad thing. It's an opportunity given to them by God to testify about King Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So important was Jesus to the first disciples that they could not help but speak about him. The very first time that the disciples got taken into custody, they are forbidden from speaking about Jesus. And Peter and John famously reply to their accusers, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What had they seen and heard? They'd seen and heard Jesus. And that's what they spoke about. It is quite a powerful statement for Jesus to say that the war is going to be about the difference of opinion regarding who he is. But perhaps the saddest statement is the extent of the division that this will cause. Because the disciples stand with Jesus, people will stand against them. But it's not just people out there. Even those closest to them, their family and friends, will betray them. This is division right down to the very roots of society. And the word witness or bear testimony in verse 13 is the same root word that we use to refer to a martyr, someone who dies for what they believe in. And Jesus tells his disciples, even before the threat has come close, that so severe will this division be that some of them will be put to death, verse 16. Yet, even though they may lose their lives, his assurance in verses 18 to 19 is that not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Now, for some of us, that's a pretty good promise, to not lose another one. But surely Jesus is on about more than just whether you've got pattern baldness. It surely builds, actually, on Jesus' earlier argument with the Sadducees that resurrection is a certainty. Those who die on Jesus' side, 
do not need to worry, for he can protect his own even in death. One of the things that's impressed people with regards to the war in Ukraine is the bravery of the Ukrainian people, famous athletes, people that have just competed at the Olympics, and and other people who are safely hidden away in other countries are flocking back to their homeland to defend it against a vastly superior army. Such is their love for their people and their country that they are willing to sacrifice their lives. But Jesus here in these verses is not trying to drum up reckless bravery. He is stating a simple truth that those who die on his side do not lose their lives. They gain their lives. The ultimate threat that the opposition can muster is a dud. And so having clarified the coming of persecution and our hope in the midst of it, Jesus returns to more details about the war. Verses 20 to 24 focus in specifically on the war in Jerusalem. So terrible is it going to be, and so sure is the outcome, that residents should not be like the Ukrainians, settling in for a fight. Instead, they should flee. Get out of there. If you're out of there, don't come back in. As Israel had been used by God to punish the Canaanites, so now Gentiles will be used to punish Israel. This has to happen, as it was written, verse 22. And we know from history that that is exactly what did happen. Less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these terrifying words, the Roman army did literally surround Jerusalem and it wiped it out in one of the most ruthless campaigns that has ever been done to any country. But what makes Jesus' prophecy tricky is that then in verses 25 to 28, he then returns to the use of more comprehensive categories which speak of a a battle beyond Jerusalem. This prophecy is not just about the destruction of the capital city of Israel, but the end of the whole world. The Son of Man, verse 27, is a title from Daniel chapter 7, which clearly speaks of one who comes as the judge of all things at the end of time, which leads to titles like the one in my Bible, which calls this section, Signs of the End Times. So what are we supposed to make of this now? The first part of Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled almost 2,000 years ago in 70 AD. When will this next part be fulfilled. Verse 32 in particular seems to indicate that all of these events will take place in the lifetime of the disciples. So there are actually two different prophecies that have kind of been mashed together. Was the destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple, just part one, and we now are waiting for part two. As the first disciples asked, our question is often, When? Can't you give us a timetable, please, Jesus? In fact, there's been a pretty fierce debate over many, many years about this passage as some make assertions as to which verses here refer to AD 70 and which refer to Jesus' second coming. But a much better way to read this passage is to acknowledge that some prophecies refer to more than one event. 
Now, there's a quote. If you haven't got one of these home handbooks yet, then do grab one. There's a quote on page 20 that was written by a very famous theologian by the name of Augustus Strong. He says, certain prophecies apparently contain a fullness of meaning which is not exhausted by the event to which they most obviously and literally refer. A prophecy which had a partial fulfilment at a time not remote from its utterance may find its chief fulfilment in an event far distant. Since the principles of God's administration find ever-recurring and enlarging illustration in history, prophecies which have already had a partial fulfilment may have whole cycles of fulfilment yet before them. Now, it's a very dense and complicated statement, as many statements by theologians are. But I think it's worth spending some time thinking about this, even more so for what we'll look at next week in the Last Supper. Because what he's saying is that prophecies don't have to refer to just one event at a certain distant moment in time. Something happens and it's a pattern of something that happens again and again and again. What it allows us to see here is that through the last 2,000 years, there have been a multitude of wars that these verses speak of. We don't need to ask which particular war fulfills verse 9 because in one sense, every single war does. At its heart, every war has been caused by an unwillingness to submit to King Jesus. Has verse 20 been fulfilled or is it waiting to be fulfilled? Yes, both are true. And again, we see why Jesus doesn't answer the original disciples' question or our own. Because when is not the most important question. As he often does, rather than just stating it directly, Jesus tells his disciples a parable to show them what really matters so they can't miss it. Verses 29 to 31, Jesus told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Should we, like the first disciples, be asking Jesus when? Should we, like many over the previous decades, have debates about the timetable of Jesus' second coming? Well, according to King Jesus himself, when we observe wars and signs in the heavens, when there are pestilences that come upon the earth, we are supposed to understand what they point to, that the kingdom of God is nearer today than it was yesterday. There is nothing in this prophecy that gives us a moment-by-moment -moment timeline of when things will take place. But what is made 100% clear is how we are supposed to respond. Point three, therefore watch and pray. Verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So it's really amazing that Jesus knows exactly what we are going to do when we hear this prophecy. He understands even more how we'll feel as this prophecy begins to be fulfilled. We will worry and we'll become weighed down. 
we'll stress out and be fearful. Verse 34. And Jesus gently tells us, don't worry. I've got this under control. Things may look terrible. Perhaps someone that you love dearly has died. But it is not the end of the story. And it most certainly doesn't mean that things are outside of the control of me, King Jesus. No, it's another sign that my kingdom is closer than it was yesterday. It's time when we see these things happening, in the words of verse 28, to lift up our heads because our redemption is drawing near. So watch and pray. That's what we're to do. Not insist and debate, not theorise and argue. Observe what's taking place and take our observations to the king who is in control, the king who has promised that he is returning as judge, that he is going to set everything right, bring justice to this broken world. As the words of the, a very great hymn say, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus doesn't give us intricate details of what we are to do in each of the specific situations that we will face. But what he does tell us is the one thing that we are to do in every situation we face. Why do we worry? Why do we want a timetable? Why do we argue with others that this is what it must mean? I think it's probably because we haven't lifted our eyes to the king. If we truly trusted him, we would get on with what is most important as defined by him. One of the people that I had the great pleasure of working with uh, in Thailand was a German man by the name of Florian. He was a year younger than me and he taught Old Testament at the Bible college that I taught at for a number of years. After he first came to Thailand and did some language study, he developed cancer and had to go back to Germany for treatment. Mercifully and thankfully to God, the treatment worked and he came back to continue his teaching. Two weeks ago, my friend Florian went to bed and he never woke up. It wasn't reported in the news like Shane Warne's death or Kimberly Kitching's death. He didn't receive a state funeral for the work that he'd done, though I'm quietly confident that that doesn't actually concern him at all. He died from a heart attack leaving behind his wife, Katrin, and his young daughter, Judith. Florian never fought a battle with a gun. He didn't protest with placards or even pithy statements on Facebook. And yet, having sided with Jesus, he was in the crosshairs of a vicious enemy. He didn't die as a martyr, as we normally think of it. And yet his life and his death are a testimony to his saviour, Jesus. One that this saviour has already commended with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Why would you want a state funeral when you can have those words from King Jesus? And it's not just Florian overseas in another country. We can make being a witness of Jesus our priority as well. Whether we teach the Bible overseas or talk with a neighbour over the fence, it is not the language or the location that matters, 
but the Lord that we speak of both in words and our actions, whether you're studying or working, whether you're retired or something else, you can live in such a way that people will want to hear about this King Jesus that you so joyfully serve. And as I observe the war in the Ukraine from a distance, as friends that I taught in Thailand that are now living in the war zone that is Myanmar, I'm encouraged to see all these things as pieces in a much bigger puzzle rather than apathy or worry and terror. They should drive me to my knees in prayer, to look up to my king who has promised that he's coming soon with the clouds of heaven, to call out to the one who will bring justice to all. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.